And as you sit, if you have your Bibles with you this evening, I invite you to turn with me to Nahum chapter 3. Nahum chapter 3. We have come to the end of this journey through this prophet this evening. And we will be considering the glorious truths in verses 12 through 19. Verses 12 through 19 of Nahum chapter 3. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. And so it is so good for us to come and to feed upon your word this evening. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would indeed feed us, nourish us, Lord, we pray, in the very truths, the deep truths that you have for us there. Show us the Lord Jesus, we pray. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Nahum chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the holy, the inspired, the inerrant, and infallible word of God written for you and for me today. All your strongholds are fig trees with ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locusts. Make yourself many, like the swarming locusts. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day, and when the sun arises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, as we come to this final set of verses, beloved, we are reminded that great sin would be met with great punishment. Great sin would be met with great punishment, and this was the vivid and graphic picture that Nahum painted in chapter 2 and thus far in chapter 3. Nineveh's great sins against their many victims were paired with their great pride in their achievements and domination. On the one hand, no one looking through the world's lens 
would ever have thought devastation would come to the most esteemed in some people's eyes, the, the most feared in many eyes, the most successful city that was a part of the greatest empire. Now, on the other hand, others were crying out, How long, O Lord? Now, because of their pride, we considered last week how Nahum raised an important question and gave an important perspective to deflate their arrogance. Were they better than Noamon? Their answer would have been a resounding yes from their own estimation. Yes, we are. They were the best. The best of the best. However, the way Nahum presented no Ammon or Thebes to them, clearly Thebes was no slouch in, in the successful great nation arena. They were well supplied and well armed. They, they had both great natural defense from both rivers and sea, as well as military strength to protect and prosper themselves. And yet Thebes was also a victim of the great king Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember. The great king Nebuchadnezzar and his forces and their conquest under divine commission, yes, they would be taken. Their pride was followed by a great fall, and Nahum reminded Nineveh, as Nineveh could likewise bank on the same being true of them. Their great sin would be met with great punishment, line-ending judgment. And God's line-ending judgment would expose them for who they really were. And Nineveh's great strength would be taken away and they would be exposed as having great weakness. Great sin, great punishment, great strength, reduced to great weakness. This is the picture that Nahum has put before us in much of chapter 3, is it not? Weak Nineveh, weak Assyria, in the hands and under the hammer of the Almighty God. And tonight we see the final call, the final taunt, the final strokes of the brush in the demise of the Ninevites. Let's look at the final call to fortify in verses 12 through 14. The call to multiply in verses 15 through 17. As well as Nahum's words regarding their shepherds and injury in 18 and 19. Now as we dive into these verses, my friends, remember the immediate context of verse 11 where Nahum insulted them and added to their scorn as he pointed out how they would drink deeply from the cup of God's wrath. How they would hide in shame and disgrace, as well as how they would even try to flee and find refuge with their enemies. And so now as we come to verse 12, we see that Nahum begins by speaking to two large weaknesses. And then issues a call in verse 14. The first weakness is the ripeness of their strongholds. Look at verse 12 with me. All your strongholds are fig trees with white ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. It's quite an interesting way to describe the weakness in strongholds, isn't it? Maybe you'd think of something more robust or more earthy or more rocky, right? 
But no, this is a wonderful way to describe their weakness. Really, their strongholds would be no longer strong. Have you ever seen a fig tree? Or have you ever plugged plucked a, a, a fig from such a tree? Although you can handpick figs from the tree, and many people do that, there are some farmers who have fig tree orchards, and similar to apples or even nut orchards, there's a broader way to harvest. When it's time to harvest, they may use a tree-shaking machine that extends a net out around the tree to grab the fruit and to gather it so that it doesn't hit the ground and get bruised. And then it shakes the tree, and all of the ripe fruit easily and quickly falls off the tree and into the net to later be bagged and taken into the storehouse or the warehouse or whatnot. You know, the Apostle John gave a similar description regarding this fig tree analogy. He gave a similar description of the scars when the sixth seal is open in Revelation 6, verses 12 and 13. There he said, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Right? So Nahum says their strongholds, the, the places that were designed to provide refuge and the greatest defense against enemy attack, would be so weak that what was once impregnable would be easy to take, just like figs falling into the mouth. That easy. Just pop into the mouth. Their strongholds would crumble. See how even the strongest of the strongholds of men, beloved, are no fence against the judgment of God. The strongest of the strongholds of men are no fence against the judgment of God. That's a big message here. In fact, God himself is truly the only all-powerful and all-sufficient stronghold and fortress that none of his enemies can take, that nobody can weaken. And that all of his people are called to run to and to find refuge in. How do we know that that's true? Well, there are many passages, especially in the Old Testament, that speak to this in the Psalms. Let's look at Psalm 94, verse 22. But the Lord has been my defense, and my God the rock of my refuge. The Lord is a great defender of his people. He is also our great refuge in our times of trouble, is he not? David said in Psalm 18, the first two verses, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Strength, 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 stronghold, refuge. All of these descriptive words regarding our God. Nahum goes on in chapter 3 to speak to the two weaknesses after pointing out this great weakness. 
In verse 13, he says, Surely your people in your midst are women. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour the bars of your gates. You know, Isaiah spoke of the coming of the Lord against Egypt in a similar fashion in Isaiah 19.16 when he said, in, the day, in that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. In addition, the Lord spoke of judgment coming against Babylon in Jeremiah 50, verse 37, where he said, A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in her midst, and they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures, and they will be robbed. Now you may be thinking, wow, pastor, so what are these passages getting at? What do they mean they will be like women? I hope it's not going in the direction I may think it's going, right? It might be a little uh, uncomfortable for me here. But in the face of the Lord's army, what we need to understand is that in the face of the Lord's army, the Assyrians were like women in battle. They were untrained. They were like women who don't belong in battle. They were physically weaker than the men who would be fighting against them. These verses support teaching that uh, I think is, is quite true in Scripture, um, that regarding women in the military, women really don't belong in the military, especially not in combat units. Right? Some may say, now, Pastor, you're just being sexist here. Well, no, I'm just reading what Scripture says here. Why would the Lord, through Nahum, say in this verse, that they are like women in the midst of this battle. What is the point? What is the point? The point is that we should highly value women, but not put them professionally in harm's way in combat. There are other ways that women can serve and are crucial and very important, of course. But beyond their soldiers, Another problem for Assyria was that their gates were wide open, though the great army approached. And as we all know, when the opposing armies are coming against you, shut the gates and reinforce the gates with the strong wooden beams or metal bars so that they can't be open. That's what needs to be done. But here Nahum said that all the beams and the bars were burned up. There were no barriers to slow the advance of the Lord's army. Assyria would have wished that they were like Jerusalem in Psalm 147, verses 12 through 14. Where he said, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your children within you. He makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. Now considering that these things, Nahum issues a second call to Nineveh to fortify. However, notice that it isn't exactly the same as the first call given in chapter 2, verse 1. In verse 14, he says, Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Right? Whereas the first call was more to fortify and to watch and to look out. Notice here, 
that the second call is to fortify, but mainly to prepare for siege. One of the initial strategies to more easily and more quickly defeat an opponent in warfare is to cut off their supply lines. That's one of the things you want to go for first. Cut off their supply lines. Starve them of their resources. Water for the people would be incredibly important for Nineveh. And yet remember that Nahum said one of the palaces, or excuse me, one of the places Nebuchadnezzar's forces would enter the city when they came was through the Tigris River Gate. They would go there. They would burst through and get in through that gate. They would be positioned to cut off their water supply. And so Nineveh needed to draw a lot of water in advance to prepare for that. Again, this call, go, fortify, get ready, defend if you can. You won't be successful. But that's really what you should do. Further, they were to fire up their kilns, notice. Get more brick and mortar made. Lay it quickly so that it would add layers of defense in their fortification. But again, their attempts for defense would all be futile. However, Nahum shows us again, like he did in chapter 2, verse 1, how men can do their very best to prepare and take a stand, but the Lord's army will, pre will prevail against their best attempts to do what anyone would say is wise preparation against any other foe. The battle checklist, the defense checklist, check, check, check. These things are done. They're taken care of, right? It's not going to stand against the Lord and his army. But Nahum goes on in verse 15 to call them to multiply. Multiply like locusts, right? Considering their kilns in verse 15a, he says, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. We're going to see him kind of camp out here for a little bit on this imagery of locusts, don't we? Though they prepare, there they would be defeated and cut off. Notice how Nahum described the fire and sword consuming them like a locust. And then what does he call them to do? Verse 15b. Make yourself many, like the locusts. Make yourself many, like the swarming locusts. What a taunt. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders, verse 17, are like swarming locusts, and your generals like great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Have you ever seen locusts to do that, or grasshoppers? Even in here, find crickets. You're like, where are they? You can't find them. You can hear them. You can't find them. My friends, in Scripture, specifically through the prophet Joel, God teaches us the devastation of locusts throughout their life cycle. In Joel 1.4, we read, What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. 
What the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So we see these locusts, right, as they develop, as they grow, as they consume, as they change. Continuing consumption, eating what was left over by the previous. But here Nahum describes, first, the merchants, their commerce, and secondly, their generals. Nineveh's trade and commerce in many ways built the city as it brought people and wealth to Nineveh. And yet the interests of these traders would become clear. They would gather like locusts. They would consume like locusts, seizing what they wanted, and then they would disappear. They would be gone. The commanders and generals really depict the rich and the powerful government officials of the empire who would run away with their riches when things got dangerous and the nation was sure to collapse. And yet there is one kingdom that will never fall or collapse. Remember how Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that although the great image he saw in his dream of gold and bronze and iron the kingdoms represented by that image would fall and be crushed by the one, Jesus Christ, whose kingdom will remain forever. Look at Daniel 2.44. Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. That's always true in the kingdoms of men, is it not? At least for those who don't experience line-ending, kingdom-ending uh, judgment like Nineveh and Assyria would here, right? But it's always passed off to another after them, their successor. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. This is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his kingdom, the one that will never fall, dominates all others, crushes all others, and remains and stands supreme forever. See how Nahum then concludes this, this prophetic scene in a very pastoral analogy of sheep without their shepherds. And of course, that being the problem. In verse 18, he says, Your shepherds slumber, O king of, Israel, of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Beloved, the, the shepherds of Assyria were the subordinate rulers under the king. And the slumber they experienced wasn't regular sleep, but rather the sleep of death, along with their nobles, Nahum said. And so therefore, what would happen? The people, the, the sheep, were scattered with no one to gather them. And finally, connected to the lack of mourning Assyria would experience, that we saw back in verse 7, having confirmed their fatal wound in verse 19, Nahum's last words are about their shame, as all who hear about the news of their demise would what? They would clap and rejoice. They would clap and rejoice at their demise. 
Verse 19, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All those who hear news of you will clap their hands over you for upon whom does not your wickedness pass continually. The people had great reason to rejoice. Because Nineveh, because Assyria was wicked. And their wickedness was evident, as we have considered in this whole prophecy. Their wickedness was evident from the beginning and only grew and grew and grew. And their victims never ceased. And so as the Lord would bring final judgment upon Assyria, as he would bring them down and bring them to nothing, the people would rejoice. There would be much gladness. I'll leave you with this tonight. As exposition of the character of God against a ruthless nation has unfolded in this book, as his character in mercy and deliverance has also been abundantly clear, may we never forget how the jealousy and wrath of God is at work for our salvation. May we see the great work of Jesus for us afresh with joy. May we never forget that our God fights for us. He subdues his and our enemies by putting them under Christ's feet. May we never forget the strong tower and the the secure refuge that Jesus is for us. And may we have confidence and look forward to continuing to press forward for the king and his kingdom that will never end. That is our call today as we consider the crumbling of this great nation, but yet the rise and the well-established and the always and forever flourishing kingdom of Christ. Here we are as his people, as his soldiers, called, called on a mission with a great commission in service to the king whose kingdom will never end. And may we be thankful That we are sheep of our pastor, our shepherd, who died and is alive forevermore. The good shepherd who will faithfully call and gather his sheep. As he will bring them to himself, they will hear his voice and there will be one flock and one shepherd forever and ever. Amen. Praise God. Let's pray together.